good if I actually could be heard. All right, I'm getting thumbs up. You know, that's a good sign that people are actually excited when the volume comes on. Uh, it's better than everyone's like, oh, thumbs down, I can hear you. So my preamble is this. When I was in preaching class, they, they, they always said, don't make the illustration so bright that they can't see the point behind the illustration. And as I was thinking about my opening illustration, I realized I'm going to say some words that are going to send people down a rabbit trail. And at the end of the sermon, this is what they're going to talk about. I'm going to say the word Congress. I'm going to say the word Supreme Court. I am not interested in Congress, nor am I interested in the Supreme Court. So if you come away from the illustration thinking about Congress or Supreme Court, you missed the point. So with that preamble, we'll get started here this morning. Uh, apparently, prior to the 1990s, it was fairly easy to find collegial respect amongst members of Congress of different parties. And yet most people point to sometime around the mid-1990s where there was a dramatic shift. Where, where the, the sense of teamwork seemed to fall away. One elder congressman says it this way, this is not a collegial body anymore. It's more like gang behavior. So what happened? And I suspect there's all sorts of different factors and, and things that contributed to it, but I'm, I'm especially intrigued by Jonathan Haidt's suggestion that one of the main contributing factors was a decision that congressmen made that they would no longer live in Washington. See, there was a time whenever a person was elected as a congressman that they would go to Washington and they would move their families out there. And what that meant is if you were invited to a social occasion in the evening, you would show up and there would be that other fellow from that other party. And you'd have to find a way to enjoy your evening together. When you take your kid to the basketball game because they're now on the team and you show up and you're like, oh, my kid's playing with that kid against that team. And it forced you to have these social interactions. But starting in the mid-1990s, most congressmen now live in their home state and they will, Monday they will travel out to Washington. They will do battle on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Thursday they fly home. And so there's no more of this social interaction. It's strictly business when they come together. Contrast that to how Ruth Bader Ginsburg describes how the judges of the Supreme Court work together. The nine judges who, of course, are dealing with awfully sensitive, awfully involved issues. And she says that when the Supreme Court comes together, one of the things that they are noted for is the great camaraderie that there is amongst the justices. They go into the preparing themselves and they each come into the robing room at the beginning of every morning that they are either in court or they will be discussing sessions, they go around and each uh, member of the justice will shake one another's hands. They have in those days of the sitting courts, they meet together in the justice's dining room, having lunches together. And as Ginsburg describes it, we eat lunches together by choice, not by rule, usually six to eight of us, and uh, occasionally more, all nine of us. They, can, they take a session each birthday to celebrate their birthdays together. What do they talk about in these lunches? They say sometimes they make fun of the lawyer's performance that day. Sometimes they talk about um, the production of whatever uh, event is in town. And of course, they talk about children and they talk about grandchildren. And I guess the question I want us to consider this morning of these two metaphors, is the church more like Congress or is the church more like the Supreme Court? Do we come together to do very important business and show up and then once we're done, we go back to our homes? Or do we come together realizing the very important work we do, we do together? 
we do with a sense of unity and with a sense of purpose. Answer, to answer that question, we're going to be looking at Acts 2 this morning. And as we begin, I want to highlight a few things from last week's sermon that we will find these themes repeated in Acts 2. And that is this sense that Christianity is inescapably personal and it is inevitably social. We, we have um, the pouring, outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the beginning of Acts 2. There is the speaking of tongues and people are inquiring as to what's going on. And Peter gets up and he shares about what has been happening. And it culminates where it talks about how Jesus was crucified, but then he was resurrected by the power of God. And that that same Jesus now sits at the right hand of God. And he is in the process of pouring out his spirit upon the people. So God is at work with Jesus Christ and with the Holy Spirit as a testimony that this truth of the Old Testament has now been fulfilled. And people respond and they say, what are we to do in response? And so there is now the very personal response that is called for in Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Christianity is inescapably a personal thing that we make decisions. But simultaneously, we recognize that it is also a very social thing. We are then joined to a community. And this is the work of the Spirit. So in Acts 2.41, so those who welcomed his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added on that day. So the evidence, part of the evidence that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on people is that people are baptized, and then those people are formed into a new community and gathering of people. And what this community does is they display to others what it looks like for people to interact in a way that honors God. So our witness is displayed in the lines of fellowship that connect us. And so this section uh, ends in Acts 2.47 saying the goodwill of all the people. So the, the Christians have the goodwill of all the people. People are noticing and recognizing their behavior, their interaction with one another. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who are being saved. This is the movement of Christianity. It is a personal individual decision joined into a social, a corporate decision event that then witnesses to people in the bonds of fellowship. And the question we want to explore this morning is how does this happen? How are we formed into that type of community, into one that will garner the goodwill of all people? And the key for us is Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. Formation can happen in different ways. One way formation happens is by thinking new things. One way formation can happen is by adopting and, and embracing new, uh, behavior, new emotions, new ways of dealing with and processing things. But another way formation happens is by engaging in new practices. What is being discussed in verse 42 are practices that the church had, things that they do together. As Dorothy Bass defines it, practices are things that we do together over time in response to and in light of God's active presence. Practices are not abstract things. They are concrete things. They are things that in our participating in them, we become something new. I don't usually like to brag from the pulpit, but occasionally I'll take my opportunity to do so. I could have been a professional musician. I was in the sixth grade whenever I was communicating that to my parents. And I told them that I wanted to play the saxophone. And they, and I don't know if this is allowed to happen these days, but back in that day, it could happen. They said, yeah, Craig, we don't think you're a musical guy. We don't think you're going to stick with it. 
but I convinced them. I said, I'm committed. I'm going to do this. And so they signed me up for saxophone lessons. And every single day I practiced for an entire week. And ever since then, I don't know that these lips have ever touched a reed again in its life. You cannot learn to play an instrument without engaging in the practice of it. We tend to believe that what happens to us as Christians will happen only miraculous in the sense that if God wants to make me something, he will instantaneously make me something. But what we're going to learn here in Acts in terms of how we form relationship, it is not through a miraculous event, but it is through an ongoing miraculous practice where we engage in certain kinds of things that form us into a certain kind of community with a certain kind of relationship. And the act and those activities are what we see introduced in Acts 2.42. And we are told that of those things that they devoted themselves to these things. And I want to make sure there's a couple of points we realize in Acts 2.42 about what devoted means. The grammar makes it clear that the word devoted needs to be applied to each subsequent noun. So it's as if they are saying they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and they devoted themselves to prayer. We recognize also from grammar, from the verbal construction, that there's, the, that there's an ongoing sense. Some of your translations might talk about continuing or continually doing something. This is not something that they did on a single occasion or at a single time, but this is something they, they were devoted to for a regular ongoing basis. Devotion means to keep on to persist, to stay with in the midst of intense effort, even in the face of difficulty. As I think about devotion, I think of the two Wright brothers, Wilbur, Wilbur and Orville Wright. What I didn't know until recently was that they actually owned a very successful bike company where they manufactured bikes and where they repaired bikes, except they had no interest in the bikes. That they had a guy that they hired to kind of manage and oversee the bike shop. And he was constantly telling them, you guys need to spend more time with your business. You guys, this, this could grow and this could become all sorts of things. But they had no interest in bikes. What did they have interest in? They had interest in a flying machine. And so over a four-year period, they took five trips from their, their home in Dayton, Ohio, over to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, where they could tinker with these flying machines. And all the while they did that, they didn't get a lot of encouragement Bill Tate, a man from Kitty Hawk, said of them, we believe in God, a bad devil, a hot hell, and more than anything else, we believe that the same God did not intend that man should ever fly. A fellow Ohio resident, Jonathan Daniels, said of the Wright brothers, we couldn't help but thinking that they were just a couple of poor nuts. Or a professor at John Hopkins, Simon Newcomb, said that the dream of flight is a myth, Any efforts to create a flying machine is wholly unwarranted, if not absurd. And yet they were devoted to it. And after four years, of course, they created their flying machine. To be devoted to something means to keep on, to persist, to stay with an intense effort, even in the face of difficulty. So I want you to ask yourself, what are you devoted to? If you don't know how to answer the question, maybe think about this. If you If somebody went and hired a private investigator and said, I want to know what this person is devoted to, and they followed you around for 30 days, what would they come up with? 
I guarantee you they wouldn't come up to you and say, hey, what are you devoted to? That's not what private investigators do. They watch your behavior through an entire month and they will come away with a sense of something that you are devoted to. And I don't know what you would answer about what you're devoted to, but I can tell you one thing for sure. The New Testament Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And I want to look closely at each of these elements and aspects. So we'll start with that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Did you know that in a criminal court case, every piece of evidence must follow a chain of custody? You have to be able to prove that, that this piece of evidence I'm holding in the courtroom is the same piece of evidence that the first officer handled. And so what they do is they, they, they sign on that evidence so everybody knows exactly who has handled this. When it comes to Christian teachings, there is also a chain of custody that must be originated with God. So God, we find in Christian teaching, is the source of all that is taught. Jesus, during his ministry, he was often said to be out teaching. That's one of his primary ministries. But in John, 17, uh, in John 7, 16, he says, My teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me. So Jesus is saying, I've inherited this teaching from my father, and he passes it along primarily initially to his apostles. And then once Jesus has, is ready to ascend to heaven, he tells his apostles this, that they should teach people to observe all that I have commanded you. They are now entrusted with this chain of custody to pass on the message. That's why after Judas had killed himself, the apostle said, we need to appoint another one. And the, whoever they appointed had a certain criteria requirement. And so in Acts 1, 21 and 22, it says, so then the men who have accompanied us during all the time that Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, until the day he was taken up from us, from one of these must become a witness to us of his resurrection. So whoever is going to assume this must have been with Jesus for his entire ministry, because they are going to attest to the teachings of Jesus. And now we are next in that chain of custody. What we as a Christian church teach is not something that is new. It is not something that is creative, but we are simply playing our role in taking those teachings that have been recorded in scripture and making sure that we're faithful to that core teaching. You can individually study scripture and you ought to individually study scripture. But what is being discussed here is community coming together for the study of scripture. For us today, this happens in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Uh, some of it's going to be very structured. It's going to appear on our church calendar. If you've not seen that, there's one on the back table where we have times where we come together to attend to the teachings of the apostles. It happens Sunday morning. You do know that, right? Because you're here. It happens Sunday night. It happens Wednesday night. It happens on occasions like Tuesday morning when we have a ladies Bible study. But in addition to these formal structured times, we also have informal times where groups of people get together and they study their Bible collectively in a small group. Now, I could do one of two things this morning. One is I could say those are your only opportunities to get together as a group. And if you don't take advantage of one of those opportunities, then shame on you. But I'm going to do something different. If you would like to study the Bible with a group of people and you say, it is difficult to impossible for me to make any of these times that we have already set aside, guess what? Let me know, let one of the elders know, and we will help find a time when you can get together with a group of people to study the Word of God. Because studying the Word of God is what is important. It is not the structured time. Because we need to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. 
The second thing they devoted themselves to was to fellowship. Fellowship is a sharing with one another, but fellowship can have these two different aspects. Number one, sharing with, or number two, sharing in something together. And both of these are going to be illustrated in Acts 2, 44 through through 47. So sharing with, we're going to see that illustrated here in 44 through 45. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. This time in Jerusalem would have been a time of special pressing needs. If, if you remember back from the beginning of Acts 2, we had people from all over the place who were in Jerusalem. Those from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Rome. So that people from everywhere have come and they've all landed in Jerusalem. They were there for the Passover. They have now stayed through Pentecost. And that creates an awful lot of need. And what we realize is they recognize when they become Christians, they now have a new sense of obligation to others who become Christians. One way that scripture illustrates this is they call other Christians brothers and sisters in Christ. And so there's an obligation to share with those who have a need. This sharing is financial. It is using my resources to help you in your time of need. And once again, as a church, we have formal and we have informal ways of doing that. Some of our formal ways of helping people is we do a meal train. Uh, Other ways is we might do a baby shower or we do a wedding shower and those things will appear on the calendar. Each week we take a contribution, a collection, and out of that a portion of the funds are used to help people in this church and used to help people outside of this church. It is a way of sharing with one another. But there are also informal ways of sharing. You might become aware of someone's need and you might personally try to help them in whatever, case, in whatever ways and resources you can. And again, the focus here is on finding an opportunity that we can participate in sharing with one another. But the second kind of sharing is sharing in something with others. This is the sense of being together, a collective relationship. So this is illustrated in chapter 46 through the first part of 47. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple... They broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, and again, having the goodwill of all the people. So I came up with a formula. Some people like formulas. Here's what involves to this type of sharing. It is me plus other Christians plus time. Boy, that sounds really complicated, doesn't it? But this is a kind of a fellowship where we do things with each other. We, we interact. We get to know. We have relationships with one another. Again, There are events on our church calendar that allow us to to do this type of fellowship. We had a New Year's Eve party. We will, in the summer, we will do a church picnic. We will do game nights. We will do all sorts of these kinds of activities. We want to be with one another. But it doesn't have to be those formal times. One of the things you recognize is some of this happens in the temple in a formal church setting. And sometimes it happens in people's homes. So one way that you can informally practice this is by inviting someone over to your house. And I'm sure someone's saying, whoa, that's pretty intense having someone I barely know come to my house. Guess what? Meet them at a restaurant. Meet them at a coffee shop or have a cup of tea with them. The focus here is on time with other Christians. The third thing that they devoted themselves was to the breaking of bread. We're not going to fully unpack this. Some people say, well, I don't know. Is this talking about the Lord's Supper? Is this talking about a common everyday meal? I think what's being discussed here is the Lord's Supper. It seems likely if you look at the language in Luke twenty-two nineteen, 19, then he took a loaf of bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said to them, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Or Luke 24, 35, they were on the road to Emmaus. And then what had been made known was made to known to them in the breaking of the bread. There is for our church, there are these two opportunities for us to come together to break bread in terms of the Lord's Supper. The first is you guessed it right here, Sunday mornings. We do also on Sunday nights have an opportunity for those who are unable to participate in Sunday morning that we will give an opportunity to break bread together. But to be devoted to, to make a priority in those occasions where we come together as a church family to break bread. The fourth thing that they devoted themselves is they devoted themselves to prayers, plural. Seems like a strange thing to do, but I think what is being highlighted is the community aspect. Again, it is important to individually pray, but what is being discussed is that collectively as a body, we should be engaged in prayers. So Acts 3, 1 says, uh, one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon. There was a place to pray and there was a time to pray. Seems to be Jesus talking about something similar whenever he turns over the tables and he says, my house shall be a house of prayer that he wants people collectively to come together in a location and order that or so that they might pray. In Acts 16, 13, when Paul goes to Philippi, he goes to uh, the place of prayer. A church family should be engaged corporately in praying together. And, and, and I think in this busy world, we've relegated all of our prayers to individual activity. But yet one of the things that we need to prioritize as a church body is times that we're together, that we engage in prayer. And of course, the conclusion to the matter in Acts 2, 47, having the goodwill of all the people and day by day, the Lord added to their number, those who are being saved. And do you see the movement here? It begins as a personal decision that I make. I am then added socially, corporately to a group of people. And then we collectively, by our interactions, we bear witness to our larger communities about what the Holy Spirit is doing in our midst. And so I think we're prepared to answer the question. Should the church be more like Congress or more like Supreme Court? Of course, the right answer is should be better than both, right? But there is a recognition that some of us treat church like Congress, a place where we come at an appointed time, we conduct our business, and then we head home. The church is not like a movie where it starts at a certain time and it ends at a certain time. The church is the relationships of a group of people who are seeking to honor God. And so for that reason, I don't think that the, the, the metaphor that best fits is Congress, but I think a better metaphor is what the Supreme Court does. They recognize they are engaged in serious work. Are we as the church engaged in serious work? Absolutely. In fact, this whole mission of God to the people out there is going to be done through a group of people who are bearing witness. That's a pretty important work. Sometimes the Supreme Court has different opinions. Huh, I wonder if we ever have different opinions. We absolutely do. We are committed to the apostles' teachings, but that does not mean that there are not times where one person might think something and another person might think something else. And we are committed to finding healthy ways to have those conversations and healthy ways to have those discussions. But everything the Supreme Court does, they do with a sense of collegiality. We as the church are a family that are devoted to having fellowship and sharing with one another. Supreme Court justices take time each morning to shake hands with each other. What is the church instructed to do? Greet one another with a 
holy kiss. All right, I'll let you off the hook. It doesn't have to be a kiss. God will at least maybe be a fist bump, handshake, hug, I don't know. But there's this recognition we want to make sure that we are greeting one another. The Supreme Court justices, they eat meals on a regular basis together. And guess what the church does? We are to eat meals together on a regular basis. We are to be with one another. Myself, other Christians, plus time. That's what we're looking for. And sometimes as Christians, we just talk about mundane things, like kids and grandkids. But there is value in each and every one of these things as we collectively as a family seek to bear witness to God. So I pray that we will be a community that is devoted to the apostles' teaching, devoted to fellowship, devoted to the breaking of bread, and devoted to prayers. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. One of the things that we do together as a community is we give an opportunity to respond as we sing our final song. Uh, I will be in the back. Some of our elders will be in the back. If you want someone to pray with, uh, if you're feeling this sense of, man, I just would love a community that would pray with me, there's going to be an opportunity. So as we stand and sing this next song, if you have any kind of a need, We invite you to come to the back while we stand and sing this next song together.